According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. In verse 43, we are ready for a new episode today, but I do have one last item, I think, to deal with, just as a a loose end, so to speak, and uh, we'll tie that loose end together here a little bit, and then uh, we'll move on to episode 25 in the... uh, Life of Christ, the betrayal, arrest, and desertion, uh, the betrayal by Judas Iscariot, his arrest here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the desertion on the part of the other disciples, the eleven that uh, that fled. So we'll be uh, we'll be there shortly. But there is a loose end we want to tie together here related to the text criticism of this passage. So let's take a look at it and uh, and then proceed. Before we do, though, uh, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and look forward to feasting upon your truth this morning, thanking you that you have prepared a meal and set the table before us thankful, Father, that by your grace we can assemble together and receive instruction. Father, we do pray for the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to understand. All of these, Father, are your grace provision on our behalf. So, Father, set aside distractions, hedge us about, protect us, uh, give us the understanding we need, Father, on this day. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have... reached point five in this outline where we're looking at Dr. Luke and uh, some of the details in uh, the Lord's Gethsemane prayers. This is the night in which he's betrayed. He's already delivered his upper room discourse, John 13 through 17. He's already walked uh, from the upper room to the garden. Uh, He had his high priestly prayer of John 17. And then when he ended that high priestly prayer, he then crossed the Kidron Ravine into this uh, garden, the the winepress garden called Gethsemane. And uh, it's in here where he's praying with three of his disciples. He leaves eight of them at the entrance. He takes three of them inside. He says, wait here and pray with me. And then he goes a little bit further beyond them. And this is where he's having these prayers, these terrible prayers, uh, where he's considering walking away from the cross. He's considering... um, the uh, possibility of his own disobedience. And, and to him, it's unthinkable. He has to say, not my will, but thine be done. He continually reminds himself he's here to obey the Father. And God the Father takes all of the sorrow of humanity and places it on the person of Jesus Christ. Teaches him what it's going to be like the next day. What it's going to be like when he assumes the wrath for all of, uh, all of human sin. And so this is what he's learning here in this Garden of Gethsemane. And in the process of this... Luke gives us these verses, verses 43 and uh, 44. It says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right. And we've dealt with that in uh, point four when we were going through the 
the, uh, the prayers there. Now, as we look at this uh, and these particular verses, uh, point five in the outline, Dr. Luke describes the angelic ministrations that Jesus was sustained by. The angelic ministrations that Jesus was sustained by. Uh, he also provides a medical description of the physical symptoms, the, the sweat, the, the, the blood coming out like sweat, dripping to the ground. Uh, and there's a tremendous amount of literature that's been written on this. And, of course, uh, it's, it is medical terminology. They are uh, expressions that are found in the book of Acts, for example, uh, also by Luke. Uh, secular medical writers uh, that would use such terms and, and so forth. It is remarkable, though, because it's not entirely clear that these verses are original, that they are original to the manuscripts, original to Luke himself uh, as an author. And so there is a text criticism question that has to be evaluated anytime we have questionable verses. And what I find interesting, if you are a student of, of manuscripts or a student of text criticism, what I find interesting is that as far as the New American Standard translators are concerned, uh, it's not even a question because there's not even a footnote here. There's no footnote, there's no margin note, there's nothing in this text that would indicate that there's anything iffy about it. Uh, if you have a New King James Bible, if you have a New King James translation, you might have a footnote. Some do, some don't, depending on which published edition of the New King James uh, <laughs> Bible that you're, you're looking at. And it may just simply say that the, uh, the NU omits these verses, okay? Uh, because, do you have that? No? Okay. Uh, in many cases, the New King James Bible is pretty hostile to the Nestle uh, Greek manuscripts, the, the UBS uh, Greek manuscripts. And so they put a little footnote in there that the NU uh, omits these verses. Well, that may be so. The NU puts brackets around those verses, <laughs> but the NU includes those verses, even with brackets around them to show what some of the questions are. And so this is just the loose ends of what I wanted to talk about here this morning before we move on. Um, and the subpoints A and B I didn't have available last week. I was able to uh, to go and grab them this week. That one does. It has the footnote. Okay, and that's the New King James. Okay, yeah. Depending on which publisher now, because there's different publishers that will that are licensed to uh, to put forth the New King James Bible. In any event, um, sub so subpoint A, and I didn't have the A and B last week for the screen, so you have it this week. Uh, angels minister to Jesus. We know this is true. Even if this verse is iffy, we know elsewhere that it, it's true. We, we, we understand this from Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11. And uh, there actually it's plural angels. Here it's a single angel. Slight difference there. But in his temptation in, in the wilderness, we can understand this. And, and, and I think we can glean it as a principle for our own application. We can take comfort in the, in the fact that when we are struggling, not against flesh and blood, but when we are wrestling against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, we're not going to do so through human effort. And we're not going to do so through the physical endurance that these mortal dust bodies can somehow uh, scrape together. All right? When we're engaged in the spiritual realm, it's a soul function of your uh, human soul and human spirit. And that needs to be strengthened. That needs to be ministered to. And angels are assigned to do that. All right. And so as we see in Matthew 4.11, the, uh, uh, the testing that takes place here in verses uh, 1 through 10 and the, the final victory in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then notice, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right. 
Angels came and began to minister to him. So it's like a <laughs> envision a boxing ring, right? And the, the bell rings. It's the end of the round. Okay, because there will be future rounds. Don't you know? This isn't the last time Satan, uh, you know, starts throwing punches at the Lord. But the, the 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 bell rings. The round is concluded, and Jesus is able to go to his corner, where his trainer there, you know, mops him down with a towel and sticks the water bottle in his mouth, and you know, um, puts some of the the uh, what's that stuff called? It stops the cut uh, from bleeding and, and different aspects like that. Okay, because he's been he's been beat up. He's going toe to toe with the adversary here, and there's a spiritual uh, beating that's taking place. And and you know what it's like. I know what it's like. The scriptures describe what it's like when we are persecuted but not crushed. Okay, perplexed but not despairing. We're getting hammered. We're getting battered. And so this ministry then becomes important. And uh, it's the role of the angels to do this. And I think you see that there in uh, Matthew 4.11. You also see it in Hebrews where angels are defined as those ministering spirits. Ministering spirits. That same word, ministering. Ministering spirits that are sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. In other words, they are here to minister in the human realm. Okay? And in, for years we talk about guardian angels that have like a bodyguard function, protective function. But what about the, the medics, <laughs> the uh, angelic medics that patch you up and stop the bleeding and, and get the water back into you, get you rehydrated after you've gone a few rounds in the, uh, in the angelic realm. Anyway, this is what we see here. So at some point, angels minister to Jesus. Uh, compare also here, Matthew 4.11. The verb there is, is interesting for strengthen in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually like a strength conditioning component here. Strengthen and eskuo. And uh, eskuo and iskuon, we have terms for strength. And, and this uh, would be to put that strength within. Uh, to strengthen in a, in a transitive verb. So uh, eskuo is E-N-I-S-C-H-U-O. Uh, be pretty short word study for you because it's only used twice in the New Testament. It won't take you too long. And they're both used by the same author, Dr. Luke, the, uh, the beloved physician here that is pretty common in his writings. It's interspersed with different medical terms. But we have it here. It's also found in Acts 9.19. If you remember that context, Acts chapter 9. What's happening in Acts chapter 9? And um, when you think Acts 9, what do you think? Damascus Road, okay? You've got to have a title for every chapter. So as you think your way through the Scripture, and, and um, you, you, you just, it, it hits, you know, it clicks with you, and you're thinking, you're thinking your way through it. All right, Acts 19, 19 Damascus Road. Here's Saul and um, Ananias. <laughs> and the Lord's sending Ananias in a vision, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the straight called street. Inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. So the Lord really seems to know what's going on here. He knows what street to go to, what house to go to, who's there, and how he's praying. No human being knows any of that. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So why do you think I'm talking to you, Ananias? <laughs> because you're the one that he's seen in his dream. Now, there's a lot of specificity there. You caught on to that? All right. And Ananias answered, Lord, are you sure about this? <laughs> you may not know this, Lord, <laughs> but I heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. He's got arrest warrants. He's traveled all the way here to Damascus. He's, 
Lord, you may not be aware of any of this. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, look at verses 11 and 12. The Lord knows everything. He knows all this detail. And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument of mine. And I want to take the time to spotlight that because, I mean, the verse I'm headed for is verse 19. But as we, as we spotlight this, um, this is what, what Glenn Carnegie is teaching us here in, from the book of Hebrews on Sunday nights. He was talking about instrumentality, being a chosen instrument, how we are instruments and instruments need to be prepared. Okay? And how Moses was faithful in his house, but Jesus was faithful in his house as a son, not a servant. And the whole thing about being prepared for service comes into, comes into focus here. So anyway, this is a connecting passage to that Hebrew study from last Sunday night. I was... I was very blessed by that, by the way, and I hope that uh, more people take advantage. They don't just skip the class because it's not the pastor teaching it. It's, there's good meat there, and, and I would encourage people to be a part of that. All right. The story goes on here. Uh, Ananias does finally show up. He goes to the house. He lays hands on him, says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, uh, you know, sent me. And so this is what happens. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight and he uh, got up and was baptized. And then verse 19, and he took food and he was strengthened. He took food and he was strengthened. So there's your term. And it's eskuo is the Greek word that's used there. All right. And... uh, these are the two places where we have the, the term in the New Testament. And so I think in Acts, it's pretty well understood to be physical food that he took, and he was physically strengthened. Uh, but what was the angel doing here in the spiritual realm for the Lord in Gethsemane? I believe it was not physical food. I believe it was spiritual food. I believe it was a spiritual strengthening as, uh, as it happens there. All right. And then secondly, subpoint B, again, what I didn't have um, last week, to show you on the slide, but uh, point B, the legitimacy of these verses is questioned. The legitimacy of these verses is questioned by textual criticism. Okay, And it's a legitimate question. If, uh, if there are a number of manuscripts that don't have these verses in there, you've got to be aware of that. Or, here's another thing, there's a large number of manuscripts that do have the verses in there, but they've also put a little uh, obelai mark by it to indicate that even the scribes of that day were uncertain as to the placement of those verses. The NAUBS committee, by the way, that's the, for the Nestle Alon Greek manuscript tradition and the United Bible Society's uh, Greek manuscript tradition. And, and they're the, the, they use functionally the same text. So the Nestle Elan or the UBS committee gives, actually gives an A rating. That's their strongest possible rating. That is their absolute certainty. There's not a doubt in their mind. When they, when they rate uh, variants, they give it an A, a B, or a C. And the a, the a rating is absolute certainty. There's not a doubt in their mind. They are convinced beyond anything that these verses were not original to Luke's manuscript. They got, they got inserted later on by subsequent scribes. That's their A rating. And, and I've never seen an A rating that I disagreed with more than this one. <laughs> All right? Uh, because I think it's, it's a B at best, that, that it's legitimate to question. It's like the, the uh, adulterous woman of John 8. I mean, it's legitimate to question whether that passage is original to John. 
And it, like this passage, likely reflects a very early tradition that was included. It's probably a true tradition. It's probably a true story known by those that were there, but not originally in the first manuscript that when Luke sat down and put quill to parchment, when he wrote it out, was not likely in that original manuscript in any event. Um, for those of you that do track uh, text criticism studies, I uh, let me just bring up a couple of things here. And... Uh, New American Standard has a footnote that says most early manuscripts do not contain verses 43 and 44. But notice that's that published edition of the New American Standard. This published edition of the New American Standard has no such footnote, makes no such mark. And so again, it comes down to which edition, uh, which published release of the text are you dealing with based on which, which publisher. This one here happens to be uh, the giant print edition that I can read from the uh, pulpit. <laughs> Foundation Publications by Anaheim, California. So, um, but if you have another New American Standard published by another house that's licensed by Foundation, by the Lockman Foundation, then uh, you may have that footnote there. You may not. So um, there's more. Uh, I think if you want, let me just read one short selection here. Handbook on the Gospel of Luke. Some of them, for example, some very solid conservative commentaries don't even mention that there's a there's a, a manuscript question even, which I find interesting. Um, okay, they don't give commentary on whether it belongs or not. This one I thought was interesting. All right, verses 43 and 44 are omitted by Papyri 75, Aleph, that's Codex Sinaiticus, but it's a revised copy of Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, it shows all the, all the ones there. Family 13, uh, a few others. Also the Syriac, the Sahidic, the Boharic, Marcion in his, in his uh, canon, Clement of, uh, and Origen, as they quoted this passage. They would, they would cite the Gospel of Luke. They would cite these verses and they would omit this passage as not being, uh, not being uh, applicable. Uh, there are some manuscripts, an entire family, in fact, that puts these verses in the Gospel of Matthew. That these verses show up in Matthew 26, tucked in between verses 39 and 40 of Matthew 26. And so, similar to John 8, that adulterous woman, you know, caught in adultery, they dragged her before the Lord and they asked, you know, what do we do with her? Okay, Same thing, because that story shows up in the Gospel of Luke sometimes. It doesn't show up in John chapter 8. Okay, and so there's a question, was it originally part of the original manuscript? Likewise here. <clears throat> the textual evidence for omission is strong. The authorities that include the verses are a frequent Western combination. In other words, when you, when you divide them up between Western and Byzantine and Alexandrian, you, you find that the ones who include it tend to be a frequent Western combination. Those that exclude them tend to be old and diverse. Omission in so many different branches of the tradition is hardly due to accident. Nevertheless, it is hard to believe that the pericope is pure invention and those who reject the verses from the text argue that they have been drawn from some floating tradition which had not found its way into the synoptic tradition. So there's arguments both ways. On the other hand, <laughs> you have different fingers. Okay? On the other hand, it can be argued that the verses might have been excised for doctrinal reasons. 
that if they were cut out, if they were original to Luke and then cut out by scribes, they may have been cut out by well-meaning scribes who didn't, who were trying to avoid the appearance that Jesus was somehow weak, that Jesus somehow was, you know, needed to be strengthened by angels, or he, he couldn't have handled the testing, kind of a thing. And so there are those that believe that the scribes intentionally removed what was originally in the Gospel of Luke. Furthermore, they make uh, the language is compatible with Luke and authorship. There's no question that the vocabulary is Luke's vocabulary. And uh, their thought likewise fits within Luke's point of view. And so the verses which are read by, and then here's the manuscripts that include the verses, including an earlier revision of Sinaiticus, um, and some of these other ones. I'm trying to see what jumps out at me. The Latin translations, a couple of the Syriac translations, uh, Justin, Irenaeus, some of the church fathers. The Textus Receptus, that's the big one right there. Because the Textus Receptus included it, it's ended up now in King James, New King James, uh, most of our modern English texts. On the whole, here's what the uh, committee here decided. On the whole, the, interval, the internal evidence inclines us to accept the verses as original, but with very considerable hesitation. And I think that's fair. On the whole, the internal evidence inclines us to accept the verses as original, but with very considerable hesitation. Okay? In other words, do you build an entire theology on sweating great drops of blood? <laughs> and, and really, what doctrine would you build on that one verse by itself anyway? Okay? Now, I think you can take it and, and include it along with Matthew 4. You can take it and include it along with Ephesians 6. You can take it and include it with other passages as it relates to angels and angelic conflict and the need for spiritual strength. Um, if it's a part of a much larger development, you're on more solid ground. But to take and build an entire doctrine on one verse that actually has a manuscript question to it, I think then you're shaky. Anybody would be shaky. Okay? Now, any more questions on that, feel free uh, bring them up tonight. We will have a question and answer time tonight, and we'll have an opportunity to uh, expand upon that a little bit more. All right. Well, those are the loose ends from last week. Let's turn over now. Uh, and we can stay in Luke as long as we're here, because we're going to move on now to verses 47 to 53. And uh, we'll start here. We'll go to Mark. Most of our time will be spent in... I think Matthew and John. Let's go to the next slideshow. Episode 25. New event in the life of Christ. Episode 25 is called Betrayal, Arrest, and Desertion. Betrayal, Arrest, and Desertion. You'll notice all four Gospels are represented. There aren't that many events in the life of Christ. The feeding of the 5,000 the crucifixion, the resurrection. Um, there aren't that many events that are recorded in all four Gospels, and this is one of them. The uh, betrayal by Judas, the arrest in the garden, and the desertion by the fellow apostles. So the verses we're looking at are Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. It's really the longest of the se- uh, second longest of the sections, 10 verses. Mark also has 10 verses in Mark 14, 43 to 52. Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. That's the shortest of the records. 47 through 53. And then John 18, verses 2 through 12. 
which is not only the longest, but also has the most unique material. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke synoptic record is largely uh, overlap. Tremendous amount of overlap between the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in this episode. John contains a lot of um, unique material, including the I Am confrontation, where the arresting soldiers would fall down. And that's that detail is not to be found in, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. All right. And uh, this touches upon some of the issues we've looked at before related to how do we harmonize these Gospels and how do we blend these, uh, these accounts. So, take a look at it here in Luke 23, or 22. While he was still speaking, and this is, why are you, you know, he said, why are you still sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's still speaking. These words are still departing from his lips. A crowd came. A crowd. Not just any crowd. <laughs> okay? This is not a coincidence. A crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. And so he, they were following him. He had led the way, and his role was to, to walk in and to, uh, to identify the one that was going to be arrested. And so when those who were going around him saw, or, or I'm sorry, then the question by the Lord here in verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Are you betraying the Son of Man with phileo love, with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what was going to happen, that would be Peter, James, and John, because remember the other eight were out at the entrance. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Remember, they had brought two with them from the upper room. And one of them, we find out in the Gospel of John, it was Peter. One of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And then uh, Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, and that is so fascinating. I'm glad we started with this gospel record. Because they aren't just soldiers from the spiritual leadership. It's actually the spiritual leadership here under cover of darkness. All right? Violating their own uh, Sabbath restrictions. <laughs> okay? This religious crowd. We'll see them get very religious tomorrow. Saying, oh, oh, we can't go into the praetorium. We don't want to vi- We want to maintain our ritual purity. We can't, you know, we can't go into the praetorium. Uh, we got Passover. We want to eat. Okay. Well, look where they are tonight. Look, look the activity they're engaged in. Murder. <laughs> okay. Um, so Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him. See, some of them were also present. They didn't just dispatch lackeys. They slipped in with a group. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? Is this an arrest warrant against a criminal? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. You know, why? Why are you doing this this way? Okay. It's kind of one of those rhetorical questions. You know, he's not expecting them to answer. Yes, we're coming after you with swords and clubs. <laughs> okay, It's a rhetorical question. doesn't need an answer. But think about it. Not just, what are you doing? Right? That's usually a bad question anyway. <laughs> okay? If you have kids, you have teenagers, and you ask, what are you doing? That's 
You don't really want to answer to that anyway. But why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it this way? You know, I've been in the temple every day this week. I'm going to be in the temple again tomorrow. Couldn't you just pick me up there? Okay. It was like when the, 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 the whole thing went down with David Koresh and the Branch Davidian raid on that compound. And, you know, why did they do that? You know, he goes into town every day. They could have picked him up at the drugstore. They could have, you know, there's any number of simple ways to, to, to get a guy. Right? I miss this, this class is going to be interesting because of my 12 years of law enforcement. I, <laughs> I've affected many arrests. I understand how to put handcuffs on people. In any event, not, I can't say many. More than a few. More than a few. Most of mine was corrections, not, not street law enforcement. In any event, if there's, a, there's an easy way to do things and a hard way to do things, why are you doing it this way? The answer is, of course, they want the cover of darkness. They want to be out of the public view. During the day in the temple, everybody's watching. During the day in the temple, there were people that believe he's, he's the Christ. There were people that believe he's a prophet. There were people that listened to his teaching. They actually tried to arrest him in broad daylight once back in John chapter 7, and it didn't work because the arresting officers showed up and they started listening to what he was saying, and they went back to the Pharisees and said, we think this guy's the Christ, <laughs> right? So we'll look at that because that vocabulary comes up here in a word study very quickly as we are going to relate John 7 to, to John 18. So here's the, uh, here's the episode. Have you come out with swords and clubs as if you would against a robber? Is that what you're doing? Are you arresting a robber, a lace-dace? And he's going to be crucified in between two lace-dace, two lace-dye, but he, he himself is not a lace-dace. Why, why are you arresting me like this? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. They tried, but they weren't allowed to. Okay, But this hour... And the power of darkness are yours. That is a verse that's got a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of meat in there. Do you understand? Do you recognize when you're under a, a, an hour of darkness that God the Father has sovereignly permitted? Why is it that God the Father has allowed the power of darkness to have victory? Yeah, because it accomplishes His ultimate purpose. All right, so we'll deal with that. We'll look at some of those issues there. Now, uh, that's the short account. Let's go to Mark. <laughs> and uh, and then Matthew. They're about the same, aren't they? Mark and Matthew. Eh, about ten verses each. All right, well, let's go to Matthew. Let's read Matthew 26 and then Mark and then John. John has the longest. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 47. Remember, we have divergent accounts. We don't have contradictions. The Bible has no contradiction. When there are discrepancies that we have to reconcile, we find ways to harmonize. Uh, we don't fall into an either-or. We don't say that Matthew is true and Mark is false. There's not a false verse in our Bible. All right, Both are true. We find how both are true based on these principles of harmonization and reconciliation. All right. Now, Matthew 26. While they were... Uh, whoops. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, and this is where, again, he wakes him up for the third time and says, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And he doesn't say, let us be going to run away from this. He says, let us be going. I'm being arrested. Let's go to the trial. 
And so while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a large crowd. Luke just said it was a crowd. Here it's a large crowd. With swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Luke also told us that some of those elders were, were mixed in as well. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. That's the signal they had agreed to previously. And so immediately Jesus went to, uh, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, and the words are slightly different than the words that Luke recorded. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Or, phrase it as a question, Friend, is this what you have come for? Or as Luke said, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? All right, so Jesus said to him, friend. Oh, that use of friend, that just gets me every time. <laughs> I wouldn't be calling him friend. I'd have different names. I'd, I'd, I'd pull out some of my old army language, and I'd have, I'd, had, I'd have some names for him. Okay, But Jesus doesn't. Calls him friend. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Luke tells us it's the right ear. John tells us his name was Malchus. John also tells us that this is Peter doing the uh, swashbuckling. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. That's a verse that gets abused. We'll have to take some caution with that when we get that far. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Oh, that's fun. We're going to have some fun with that. All Jesus has to do is say the word. Say the word, and here's twelve legions of angels. His personal praetorian guard, his personal honor guard. <laughs> he doesn't need Peter and his sword. Alright? If the point was was to kill these guys, easy enough. How then old which say that it must happen this way? How then? Remember, he's already dealt with this earlier in this night in the upper room discourse. He's telling them about uh, that you will all desert me. And they said, no, far be it, Lord, we won't desert you. He says, well, scriptures have to be fulfilled. Zechariah says, you desert me. So what do you, is Zechariah a liar? Is the scripture wrong? <laughs> Am I a liar? Am I wrong? You're going to desert me. And Peter says, oh, no, not me. And well, three times before the rooster crows. And that's going to happen here coming up. Um, but the Scriptures have to be fulfilled. Why do you have such a low view of the Scriptures? It's prophesied that you're going to abandon me on this night. You're going to flee. In that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? You know. And the number of these men is interesting. There could be up to 600 men here. That's a lot. I never took that many to affect an arrest warrant, okay? 600, if, if it's a full cohort. You know, it may just be a detachment from the cohort. But nevertheless, I don't think it would be less than 200. They are moving in force. This is how the Romans operated. This is why people were so intimidated <laughs> by the Romans. All right. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. You know, you could have picked me up there. Why, you know, why 200 men or 600 men in the middle of the night? But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. There it is. Zechariah 9 is fulfilled. <laughs> all right. So there's the account. Very similar. These are all very similar. Over to Mark. Mark 14. I'm not going to get as far with this as I had thought we would. Mark 14. Fun thing about Mark is what's unique to Mark. is the naked young man at the end of the story. And uh, verse 42, Jesus says, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by or followed by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, uh, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Uh, so Mark doesn't record the question that Jesus had for Judas. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. Then verse 51, And a young man was following him, wearing a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest, and he goes off for trial number one. All right. There'll be multiple trials the next morning before the sun comes up even, and then after the sun comes up, and leading ultimately to Golgotha. All right. So who is this naked kid in the garden? <laughs> All right. We'll get to that next week. Let me give you a rough sequence here. And then, uh, well, actually I've got one more gospel. Turn to John 18. John 18. My theory is, by the way, that's Mark. That's, that's Mark himself. That's the young man Mark. He's the nephew of Barnabas. He's, his mother's got a, a house in Jerusalem. Um, he's the only author that records this story. And, uh, and I believe that he records it to show the one point in the entire life of Christ's ministry where he himself uh, entered into the story. Now, whatever he was doing in the garden, wrapped in a linen sheet... He doesn't say. But I'm curious. And maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven and maybe not. Maybe uh, he was there for bad reasons. We don't know. All right. All kinds of theories about why a young man would be half naked in the garden, in a garden after dark. Um, but scripture doesn't say. All right. John 18. Now, this one is not only the longest, but it also has something similar to the synoptic accounts, but also some material that's absolutely unique to the, gospel, to the synoptic gospel accounts. And we also want to remember, it was the last of the four written gospels, probably two decades after the other gospels were all written or more. All right. Much of the gospel of John is unique to the gospel of John anyway as a rule. And uh, this uh, episode is no exception to that. It's a good illustration of that. We also want to remember that John was literally there at the time. Matthew was not. Matthew was outside with the other eight. All right. Uh, Mark may have been if he was the naked kid in there. Okay. Luke wasn't. Luke learned about this when he when he did all his interviews and did his historical research during Paul's 
Caesarean imprisonment. But John was there that night. So, uh, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden, in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, having received the cohort, we're going to do some work on this. What is this cohort? could be up to 600 men if it was a full cohort. could have been 200 men if it was just a simple maniple division of the cohort. Maybe it was just a squad or a detachment from the cohort. In any event, it's a, it is a technical term. Having received the cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So you've got both Roman guards and Jewish guards present for this arrest. Came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> Do you know how much pressure Jesus is under at this moment? And the actual utterance. He may have laid aside his privileges, but the sheer power on the verge of being unleashed here. <laughs> All right. And therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. All right. Anyway, there's uh, the episode here. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. He had uttered that in the prayer just, uh, just before crossing into the garden in the high priestly prayer of John 17. So Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? This is my assignment. How dare you keep me from drinking this cup? All right, so here is the simplest sequence. Point one then, if you're keeping notes, point one. The simplest sequence. I'm just going to list them out here for you. I think this is the best way to harmonize all four gospel accounts. Um, maybe, you know, this could be tweaked or other people might find different ways. But I think first thing that happens is Judas' arrival with the armed soldiers. Judas' arrival with armed soldiers. It's the first thing listed in all four gospel accounts. And all four gospel accounts do mention Judas. They do mention the, the crowds. Um... Luke and Matthew call them crowds. Uh, John calls it a cohort. And officers, huperete, uh, from, uh, huperetes from the Pharisees. I'll give you that vocabulary as well. But Judas' arrival with armed soldiers. All four Gospels record that. Secondly then, I believe the kiss is the very next item. It's the very first item. Um, probably even as the soldiers were arriving, because he was a little bit ahead of them. Judas's kiss and private word from Jesus. And that will be the next event as we put these into a sequence. Judas's kiss and private word from Jesus. Uh, only the synoptics record this. And actually, on, uh, only the synoptics record the kiss and only Matthew and Luke record the private words, the, the question that Jesus has for Judas. 
And, and I love this. This is such a parallel to um, the questions that the Lord asked Adam and Eve. Did you eat from the fruit? Uh, the, the question that the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Uh, you know, these are questions that are being asked, not because God's ignorant. God knows everything. But he's asking these questions so that as a final confession opportunity. A final confession opportunity. This is the last chance Judas has to confess. Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? <laughs> okay. And, uh, yes. That's what he does and kisses him. Uh, so that's the second item. The triple I am. I place this next. I place this next. And as I envision this, uh, Judas has just kissed him, stepped back. Here come the soldiers. And Jesus challenges them. Whom do you seek? Whom do you seek? In the triple I am. Only found in the Gospel of John. Only found in the Gospel of John. They fall down, they get up, they fall down, they get up. <laughs> okay. That's when Peter and John and James figure out what's happening. And uh, Peter goes for the sword. Peter's sword. It's the fourth event in this sequence. All four Gospels record it. Only one names him by name. But all four Gospels record the disciple grabbing the sword, chopping off the, the ear. Uh, they're all unanimous in the fact that this was the slave of the high priest. And uh, John, of course, gives us his name as Malchus in John 18.10. This is remarkable, of course, because it's quite conceivable that at the time this gospel was written, Malchus may very well still be alive. Or Malchus's children may very well still be alive. There are witnesses to all these events that are still living at the time the New Testament was being written. Okay, And so if any of this is, is manufactured or false or fictionalized or made up by the disciples, they invented some kind of a story, uh, well, his name is Malchus, go ask him. <laughs> right? And uh, remarkably enough, there was never, ever any uh, criticism of this on the part of the, uh, the, the Talmud, the Talmudic sources, the Jewish uh, critics of, of Jesus. Couldn't dispute anything... Uh, Recorded here in the gospel record. All right, so Judas arrives. Judas kisses the triple I am, Peter's sword. Then um, along with that is the healing that uh, not every gospel records the healing, but that's attached to Peter's sword. And then um, what I'm calling a message of irony. The message of irony. It's the message that I spoke about here a few minutes ago related to the, you know, you could have arrested me any day this week. You know, I, I, I was there in public every day this week. You didn't, you didn't arrest me then. Isn't it ironic? Now you're coming after me like I'm a murderer. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a laystace. I'm a robber. You, uh, you got this. This is a, you know, this is like a SEAL Team Six raid on a, on a compound in Pakistan or something. Wait, what are you doing? Okay, <laughs> really? It's a message of irony. And we'll address that as we uh, develop it out. And then finally, the uh, well, two more things. The fleeing disciples. The fleeing disciples, unique to Matthew and Mark, M&M. Uh, Luke does not record the fleeing disciples, but Matthew and Mark do. Some of them don't flee that far, though. 
because two at least stop and start following the soldiers. Peter and John actually are going to be able to eavesdrop on uh, some of the trial proceedings. And uh, John even, because of family connections, uh, gets, uh, gets to bring Peter inside the, uh, the, the servant's entrance at the, uh, at the high priest's house. Okay? And that's, that's amazing. We're going to learn more about James and John and their family and their connections to the high priest. It's really interesting that we don't learn at any point up to this uh, but John is known to the household staff of the high priest. And he's granted admittance to eavesdrop on the proceedings. How, do, how does John even know that the servant's name was Malchus? Because <laughs> he knows him. He knows him. Okay? Zebedee was a wealthy man. He had a fishing fleet, we're told. Multiple ships, multiple boats on that. And in a full fishing fleet. It was a conglomerate of a fishing operation with servants in multiple boats. You don't own multiple slaves unless you're well-to-do. Zebedee was very well-to-do. All right. In any event, um, people don't always get, I think, the best picture of the wealth that James and John had, the wealth that Salome, their mother, had access to. The first-name basis with the uh, household staff of the, of the uh, high priest. That's significant. I mean, just how about how, owning a home in Capernaum, owning a home in Jerusalem? All right. And then finally, the naked young man. The last episode of the naked young man. I don't have much more to say about the naked young man, but it's just curious why it's recorded in Mark. It's not recorded in Matthew and not recorded in Luke or John. Oh, there's no shortage of legends. <laughs> there's no shortage of stories. Uh, that he was, um, you know, that he he lived in the house where the upper room meal was hosted. That he was the son of the man that had prepared the upper room. Uh, that that you know Mary was his mother. It was the upper room where the the day of Pentecost would take place, where the Holy Spirit would descend, and and that uh, that he raced out to try to warn Jesus when uh, soldiers had first gone there. That that Judas took soldiers there before Judas took soldiers to Gethsemane. Okay. And it was then that, that Mark was alerted. Oh, here's Judas with the soldiers. I better go warn Jesus. So he didn't even take time to get dressed. He just threw a sheet around him and he ran out of the house and he ran to the garden. But he didn't make it in time and the soldiers beat him and Jesus was arrested. And Anyway, there are lots of legends about why you've got a mostly naked young man in a garden after dark. And uh, the Bible doesn't tell us why. It just tells us he was there. And I find that interesting. Okay, well, um, this is where I guess I do have to cut today short, and I apologize for that. Um, under point two, we're going to look at the soldiers. And so let's just at least take a quick look at this, and then uh, we'll close in prayer. It's not quite 11, but I wanted 10.55 to be my target time today. I'm also going to be highly... Uh, inconsiderate to our visitors. <laughs> so uh, I'll assign my deacon to answer questions or talk to folks because I, I have to literally race out of here as fast as my Mustang can get me up to uh, an appointment for my mother. Um, in any event, these, uh, these soldiers, they're called a cohort. Uh, the synoptics simply call them a crowd. Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
uh, identify a crowd, an aklas, a crowd from the chief priests and elders that are armed with clubs and swords, all right, or swords and clubs. And uh, in the narrative, it describes what they're armed with. And then in the question, in the, in the message of irony that Jesus said, have you come out to me with swords and clubs? as against a robber. So both the, the narrative description and the message Jesus delivers mentions the swords and the clubs. And likewise, his rebuke when he tells Peter to put his way a sword is very important. If those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And what's the context for that? What's Jesus addressing related to that? Okay. And I think it's interesting if, in fact, there are, and I, you know, John says there are Roman soldiers here. There's a cohort here. A cohort is one-tenth of a legion. That's a, that's a lot of soldiers. A cohort, you know, you've got, you know, there's centurions present in this. Senior Roman officers that are present. And for the Jewish people to take up arms against the Roman Empire, not a good idea. Those who do are going to perish by the sword. In fact, in 70 A.D., their nation is destroyed because of that. The uh, John specifies a cohort... And officers. And this is where we'll pick up. Uh, the cohort is a spera. It's a Greek term that translates a Latin term. And uh, then the huperetes, the uh, officers or the attendants, official representa- uh, representatives of the high priest, the huperetes, a helper, an assistant, an officer, or an attendant. And we'll show you what that term means. It's very precise. It can be used generically depending on, on whose assistant it is. You know, an assistant to Pharaoh is different from an assistant to uh, a baker, okay? But or an assistant to a, a, a centurion or an assistant to a high priest. It just means assistant. But who he's the assistant to makes all the difference in the world. And so uh, these officers from the uh, from the temple. We'll deal with that again next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. Thank you for the opportunity we have to study this passage. And I pray, Father, that we would learn this lesson. A day may come that we ourselves are assigned um, such ministry. A day may come that we get arrested. A day may come that we um, are uh, wrongfully accused and, and convicted and condemned. Father, if that's the case, then uh, then we need to learn how to minister, how to accept the, the uh, cup you give to us, to, uh, it may not be our preference, but it's not our will, but thine that has to be done. So, Father, if the days are coming that we're arrested for our faith, then uh, perhaps this passage of Scripture is going to have impact. Uh, make use of it, Father. Minister your truth to our way of thinking. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.